Wonder Thing Studios proudly presents the Roundtable Podcast, episode 111. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison, and you've tuned in to the Roundtable Podcast. On the Roundtable Podcast, we invite writers to come onto the show and pitch a story idea to us and to us. Actually, it's not us today. To me and my esteemed guest host. And then we dive into it. We froth into it. We we, we lay it out on the cutting board table. Uh, uh, we, 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 we knead it like dough. We mix in ingredients. We we distill it down. We do all the cooking things, all the, the liquory things, all the fun things that you can possibly do to something. Distill its raw essence into this wonderful thing we like to call literary gold. And once again, friends, I'm flying solo, which apparently, given given the duration of last week's uh, uh, 20 minutes with, is certainly no deterrent from me or my guest host talking, and that's actually not a bad thing. Uh, let's go ahead and bring him back on, uh, friends, fresh from a 20 minutes width of, of epic proportions. Please welcome back to the RTP Studios, Master Mike Cole. Mike, dude... Uh, it's 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 great to have you back. It was wonderful to sit and chat story with you again. But I got to tell you, dude, I'm seriously jazzed at the prospect of brainstorming a story with you again. It has been far too long. Thank you so much for making the time. Thanks for having me back, man. I really uh, it's been way too long. You're right. We shouldn't wait three years for the next time. I I couldn't agree more. And and really, I'm actually I'm getting a chair set up in the studio that just says Mike Cole on it as a constant visual <laughs> reminder that oh, dude, there's nobody in that chair. We should fill that chair again. We will. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, look, dude. Um, there's there's amazing stuff that you've been doing, obviously, but there's incredible stuff on the horizon. Uh, uh and I want to give you some time. Just regale our listeners with the wonder of what is coming up in the world of Mike Cole. Okay, so the, the new project is the, the conclusion of my Shadow Ops prequel trilogy, which began with Gemini Self Follow with Javelin Rain. The third book is called Siege Line that is turned in uh, to yes. Ace Rock. It has its in copy edits uh, and cover design as we speak, and hopefully that'll be coming out in March uh, of this year. And then um, I have three more books under contract with Tor.com. We just had uh, advanced bound manuscripts manuscripts also known as abms have been issued for the first book in that trilogy uh the fractured girl is the working title it will likely be retitled um and then there are two more books under contract one which is 50 percent written i am currently in contract negotiations for a my first nonfiction military history awesome. with uh, a major major publisher so hopefully we'll, i'll be able to announce that deal soon i am also in contract negotiations for the development of a game based in my universe which uh, will include a designer's credit for yours truly, Dave, uh, <laughs> since you uh, were a, a seminal part of uh, bringing that to fruition. I'm so um, grateful. But again, Thank you. I'm so excited too, man. I, I, I really am. Um, I don't know. Again, with contracts, I never want to say, I never want to exhale until I know for sure <laughs> that it's happening. Um, so suffice to say that those two projects are in contract negotiations. And then the, the big news, of course, is that um, I'm starring on CBS's new primetime reality TV show, Hunted, where I'll be one of the uh, hunting team in the command center that is tracking down fugitives. And that is airing, premiering in Survivor's old uh, slot uh, at uh, 10 p.m. on East Coast time after the AFC Championship game on January 22nd. At the time of this uh, episode dropping, Mike, 
people will have just watched it like last weekend. This will air the Tuesday after that premiere episode has aired. Uh, and okay. no- normally I'd ask you, so so Mike, comment on the uh, episode for us, but you can't, can you? <laughs> no, I cannot. I mean, it, it, CBS is, is watching us, and not that they have to. I mean, look, half of us on this show were uh, intelligence professionals. Keep, <laughs> yeah, right. keep secrets for a living, right? Um, but yeah, yeah, we we don't want to ruin it for you. The whole the whole point of the show, what makes it so wonderful, is that tension of you know who's going to get away, are they going to get away, you know, uh, are they going to get caught, when's it going to happen? And we really are working hard to make sure that. There's no spoilers. Uh, nobody hates spoilers more than science fiction and fantasy nerds. So we're making sure that it's happening. That's awesome. Mike, I got to point out that when you look at what's coming up, you have become a transmedia storyteller. You have transcended yeah. the written word as a narrative form. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, not intentionally. <laughs> no, certainly not. I, never, I mean, look, I... Always been a gamer. Oh, and I, I didn't even mention I'm, I'm working on a comic book too. What? Uh, although that's not even in in, uh, in contract negotiations yet, which is why I haven't been announcing it to people or even hinting at it. Um, but the thing is, like, what do I do? I, I go into mediums that I'm a fan of. I'm a huge fan of comic books. I'm a huge fan of games. I'm a huge fan of novels. So of course, these are areas that I'm going to want to create in. TV, on the other hand, man, I even watch TV. So. Uh, that, that just came out of left field. Although, just today I went out and bought a TV because I figured if I'm going to be on it, I might have bought one. Um, so, uh, I'm, I'm entering into that world. But yeah, um, it's delightful to know that I've uh, diversified my feet, uh, my, my footing in the creative community. Absolutely. Absolutely. What about uh, what about conventions? You got any conventions coming up? I, I know you're, you're, yeah, you're yeah. prevalent towards yep. the Comic Cons these days. Yeah, mostly Comic Cons. Um, although, I just received an invitation to appear at Balticon and just because that's that con is very near and dear to me uh, because it's where I got the Compton Crook and gave it away to Charles Gannon and just, they've been so good to me. I'm going to do everything I can to make it. Last year I had to cancel because I was shooting the, the TV show. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, I'll be at Seattle Comic Con or Emerald City Comic Con. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's going to be in March in Seattle. I always do New York Comic Con and I will almost certainly be in Phoenix Comic Con, which is going to be May or June. And I'm considering other ones like Salt Lake City Comic Con. And I uh, got uh, uh, Dallas's uh, Comic Palooza. So te- excuse me, Austin, Texas's Comic Palooza has reached out to me to see if I could make it there. And I'm, I'm going to see what I can do to do it. Sweet. God, comic fans are getting their, their, their full measure of Master Mike Cole. That's awesome. Very cool. Not just comic fans. Not just comic fans. Comic Cons are, are sort of for all nerds these days. Video oh, my games, God, yes. Literature everything yeah yeah well and i know cat rambo loves the emerald city comic con uh there's a lot of good i mean really to call it a comic con anymore is almost a, a disservice uh, uh there is a lot more going on there than just comics yeah yeah absolutely um so. they, they really are just giant genre conventions yeah and uh and they're a great opportunity to see these cool cities I, i'd be lying i I always look at my schedules uh, for these events and then like I find the holes in them and go out and explore, you know, I'll be at Pike's place and watch people getting coffee, that kind of stuff. Awesome. Very cool. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta check out, you can't, you can't just drop and stay in the hotel, man. When you're, when you're in Austin or or Seattle, you, you got to stretch your legs a little bit. Like how are they going to have world con in Helsinki? I'm like, if I go to Helsinki, I'm going to be like, Oh, there's a con. I mean, I'm in Helsinki. (laughs) 
you know, I'm going to go off and see Finland. So, uh, damn, damn uh, sticky. I, yeah. It'll be interesting to see how the attendance goes at that, uh, that one. I can tell you, Terry and I are going to get there like days early and we're going to soak in the local vibe before we immerse ourselves into the WorldCon experience. So yeah, I, think I think that's the yeah. only way to go. So awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Mike, I will make sure all of that fabulosity gets in the liner notes so that our listeners can make with the clicky click or or bite their nails in anticipation of all the fabulosity that's coming out from the desk and, and mind of Mike Cole. Uh, but right now, Here's what I want to do. I want to pause, give give some podcast airtime to to another podcast, to an ebook, to a Kickstarter. There's 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 an endless stream of fabulosity happening out in the world out there. And when we come back, Mike, I would love to brainstorm a story with you, dude. What do you say? That sounds great. Let's do it. I think it's a plan. Absolutely, friends. Don't you go anywhere. We will be right back. Fifty years ago, Mira humankind's last hope to find new resources, departed the solar system. Seven years into her mission, she disappeared. Now, she has returned. SNR Black, a sole Federation Marine Corps vessel, is sent to retrieve her from certain destruction in the Kuiper Belt beyond Pluto. What they find will change humankind forever. From Parsec Award-winning author Paul E. Cooley, Derelict Marines, Part 1 of the Derelict Saga combines military sci-fi, space opera, mystery, and suspense to create a journey you won't forget. Podcast available at Shadow Publications and iTunes in December 2016. Some mysteries shouldn't be solved. Welcome back, dear friends, and now we get down to the business at hand, the meat and potatoes and the dessert all rolled into one, the story brainstorm. And that doesn't happen without a bold and courageous, a creative and courageous guest writer striding boldly to the slightly less comfortable writer's chair here in the Roundtable Virtual Studios. Uh, and friends, our guest writer for this episode uh, is a world traveler, a renaissance man, and aspiring god emperor. Uh, he's also a former teacher, a former professional wrestler, and a published author. Uh, a story and character enthusiast, he draws inspiration from books, graphic novels, movies, anime, video games, and other stuff. In other words, he is the definitive nerd. He enjoys heavy metal t-shirts and claims to be trying too hard to be funny. But you know, in my book, making the effort is better than not trying at all. Dear friends, please welcome to the writer's chair here at the round table, Jonathan Zerusen. Jonathan, dude, I, I, I've been where you are, man. It is not a comfy place. Uh, so I have nothing but but respect and props for your cojones to step up and, and provide us with a, a seed for a brainstorming forest, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me on the show. Dude, Thank you for Mike Cole for being here. Yeah, yeah, we're pumped. We are pumped. So, so oh, professional same. wrestler. Did you have a a professional wrestler name? What was your wrestler name? Well, not, not, I don't want to don't want to give too much away. Oh, but I was pretty I was pretty close with this guy. He was a ninja. His name was Zero Two. Dude, That's all. yeah, dude, one of one of several zeros. I was pretty close with number two. <laughs> 
you were you were up there in the ranks, man. That's awesome. <laughs> and 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 you know, really, professional wrestler and storyteller, pretty much the same thing when you get right down oh, to yeah. it. Uh, Absolutely, maybe one it's might a, be a bit more athletic than the other. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, professional wrestling is a is a performance art, but it's all about telling a story through your actions, through your expressions. Absolutely. Uh, and that's something that a lot of people don't get about professional wrestling. Well, but, everybody uh, approaches their art with a different need, a different desire to be fulfilled. Right. So, uh, and, and as Mike pointed out in the 20 minutes with man, that's, that's up to them. That's their responsibility. So absolutely cool. Well, let's get down to this, man. I'm keen to, to, to hear your story pitch, uh, and get down to the brainstorming goodness. So you know how this works. We give you five to eight minutes. You give us the title, the genre, your, your target audience, uh, give us a tagline, any themes you might be trying to work, introduce us to the world and the characters, give us the tent poles of the story, lay all of that stuff out for us. And we will be off to the brainstorming races. Uh, dude, I'm getting out of the way, man. The mic is all yours. All right. See if I can uh, fit all this in there. <clears throat> Title and genre. This is a sci-fi, modern fantasy, military, political thriller with the working title Cogs of Samsara. Hook line. A robot and an armored warrior learn about themselves and the nature of man as they clash in a global conflict. Themes. The effects of radical ideals and blind faith. And does robotic transcendence devalue humanity? The world. Uh, the story is set in a non-Earth, modern sci-fi fantasy world. Several of the largest and most powerful nations form relationships to expand their borders and gain greater control over resources, the economy, and world politics. Because of this aggressive atmosphere, international tensions are high. Technology is at a cyberpunk, dieselpunk parallel to our 1970s and 1980s, so late Cold War. Gunpowders are limited, resulting in a modern version of Renaissance warfare. Uh, advances in robotics and AI research have many worried, leading to the formation of humanist protest groups. Characters. Character 1, Jinzo. The world's first cyborg, he was developed as a tool for covert warfare. He had once been a leader in an armed rebel faction before his capture and transformation. He begins the story as a simple AI, eventually becoming self-aware and reverting to his role as militant leader. He later evolves again, becoming enlightened, and as a rebel, he wants freedom for his people. As a guru, he wants peace in the world. Character two is Charlotte. Part of a noble family, she was raised in military schools her entire life. Aggressively nationalistic, she longs to impress her indifferent parents. Her unquestioning loyalty to her country and her service in an elite strike team help her to be selected to operate the first suit of powered armor. As she sees the effects of war, she begins to doubt her convictions. When confronted about her role in the world, she reflects on her beliefs and comes to see her nation and the war through new eyes, ultimately striving for peace. And the story. Part 1. The story opens with Jinzo coming online as the first artificial intelligence in a covert project to design combat robotics. He has yet to be placed in a body and functions as a simple AI with only functional awareness. A rival nation is developing a suit of powered armor in response. Charlotte is going through the last phases of testing to determine who will operate the armor prototype. She's chosen based on her service record and on her unquestioning loyalty to her nation. Once she is selected, she informs her parents, who remain unimpressed. 
Disappointed, she contacts the members of her strike team who are happy for her success. Once placed in a body and fully operational, Jinzo is deployed to suppress the armed rebellion that has been racking the nation for years. He succeeds in his missions with brutal efficiency, striking fear into the rebels. Reports of his existence and capabilities raise already high international tensions. The government and the head of his project squabble over how best to use him, or whether he should be used at all. The debate sparks the first instance of Jinzo's moral curiosity. Jinzo's existence also heightens the global discussion of AI and advanced robotics. Some see it as a natural part of mankind's progress. Others, Charlotte included, see it as an affront to their various gods and feel that it devalues humanity. With the world at peace, Charlotte is used as a figure for political posturing and propaganda. Despite her increased status and visibility, her parents remain unsatisfied. She longs to prove herself. During all of this, the international climate is growing more aggressive. Border protests between two countries erupt into violence, which then lead to a global war. Part 2. The war is in full swing, with Charlotte leading soldiers on the front lines on one side, and Jinzo striking covertly on the other. Charlotte is reunited with her old team members and is happy to be among friends again after such a long time. She takes comfort in her command and is able to once again find a sense of belonging and purpose, but seeing the cost of battle leaves her shaken. Jinzo is becoming more self-aware each day and is attempting to assemble a personality. While still compelled to execute orders, he finds the motivations of people incomprehensible, causing him to ask about the purpose of war. These developments exceed his developers' expectations, causing them to worry. The government is uneasy, questioning whether or not he should be placed in the field. After being assured he is still functional, Jinzo is sent on a mission to destroy a manufacturing base that is soon to be behind enemy lines. Charlotte's old strike team has been ordered to secure the same base. They encounter Jinzo, and in the battle are eliminated. One member manages to send a transmission back to command before they die. Alerted, Charlotte breaks from her post and rushes to assist. Inside the base, Jinzo finds cybernetic bodies like his own. Collecting data from the base, he learns that he was once human. Convinced that his handlers must have more information on his origins, he destroys the base and prepares to leave but is met by Charlotte. They trade words. Charlotte, enraged by the death of her teammates, claims that Jinzo has no right to exist. To rebut, he claims that, given her history, he is actually more human than she is. The ensuing battle is interrupted by a team sent to retrieve Charlotte, allowing Jinzo to escape. Charlotte is then taken before a review board and placed on suspended duty. While isolated at her parents' estate, she ruminates on Jinzo's words. Studying the history of her family, she begins to see that the world is not black and white like she had believed. Before her return to duty, she has a discussion with her parents, in which she realizes that she will never be able to make them happy. Jinzo returns and confronts his creators about his past. They reveal that he was once a leader of the rebellion he had been ordered to suppress. As the memories return, he realizes that people fight to protect what they love. Furious, he kills the engineers and ruins the base before realigning with the rebels. Part 3. Now working with the rebellion, Jinzo has reverted to his past self, believing in violent revolution against an oppressive government. But, as his mind continues to expand, he sees the futility and human cost of the fight. This belief causes a schism within the group. Charlotte is back on the front lines, with her closest friends dead, her relationship with her parents null, and her faith in her country shaken. She is struggling to find meaning in the ongoing war. She finds it in mentoring her troops and protecting refugees. She still fights, but now only to end the fighting. In an attack, 
Jinzo boards an enemy vessel, hacking its computer to bring it down. In doing so, he contracts a virus that destroys his AI. Eventually, he reconstructs his mind, and after returning from the void, he is now enlightened to the truths of reality. Everything is connected in an endless cycle of life and death. No longer wishing to fight, he leads his followers in a long retreat towards a neutral country. Due to a peace agreement, Jinzo and his people are now pursued by both Charlotte's forces and their own government. Nearing the bordering mountains, Jinzo stays behind to hold off their attackers to ensure his people's escape. In his confrontation with Charlotte, he explains his newfound beliefs of peace and a connected people. Realizing the futility of revenge, Charlotte allows him to escape, officially stating that she saw him die. Once the war is over, Charlotte requests to be moved from the field and installed as an ambassador, and pilgrims travel to the mountains from all around the world, hoping to find Jinzo and hear his teachings. That's that. All right. Good pitch. Interesting. Fascinating. Much stuff to talk about. But, Jonathan, what are you hoping to get out of the next 45 minutes or so of brainstorming? Well, there's a lot of specific events that happen. There's a lot of character changes that happen. Mm -hmm. And authenticity is one of the most important things to me. So authenticity for characters, emotions, and motivations. And so I hope that we can find a way to make sure that the changes the characters go through are believable and that they ring true and that everything that everything seems real, even though it's fake. I, I think you've come to the right place. I think there's going to be a frothing discussion about that very thing. I'm uh, looking forward to the froth. <laughs> so before we dive into that, we got to give our patented disclaimer. So, Jonathan, here's the thing. You are about to hear a veritable deluge of, of insights, ideas, and inspirations, and you must understand and acknowledge that everything said from this point forward by myself or Mike might be complete bullshit. Uh, <laughs> this is your story, man, and you can decide what is good to keep and what needs to get chucked to the wayside. Are you cool with that? I am cool. My oh. nose is wide open. <laughs> well, it might get a whiff of who knows what, but let's dive into this. All right. Uh, uh, first thing we do, we do just a quick once around the table, which is going to be very quick this episode. Uh, it's just <laughs> me and Mike. So let's start off. Mike, what are your first impressions of Jonathan's pitch? And do you have any questions of clarification or, or observations you want to make just as a, as, a, as a quick preview to come? Um, the, the first reaction I get when hearing it is, for some reason, I, it is evoking visuals of anime in my mind. Um, yes. There's something about the overall tone that made me think that this is an anime story, or, or that the writer is heavily influenced by anime. John, I'm sorry, the writers, if you're not in the room, say John. <laughs> uh, that, John, that John's heavily influenced by, um, by anime. Uh, I, I'm not sure if that's the uh, that's the case or not, but no, I don't actually think there's anything that needs clarifying, John. You did a great job of laying out um, exactly what it is and what you're after. Uh, one thing I do want to say that I noticed very, very quickly is that A, in the questions, what you're hoping to get out of it, and where you focus, your focus is apparently very, very strongly on the characters and making sure that those characters change throughout the course of the story. And that may seem like a small thing, but it's actually the biggest thing and right. may even be the only thing that makes a story important. So I, I'm pleased to say that, that um, while I do think there's things that have to uh, uh, be tweaked, and I'll talk to about some ideas I have, you're, you're, you definitely have the accent on the right syllable, so to speak. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. I quite agree. Good. 
I quite good agree. to hear. And and yeah, I, I got to agree, Mike. There was there was a lot of imagery being evoked in the telling of that story, and and just the fact that the the, the setting, the characters, the the events unfolding, the fact that they do have that evocative nature, I think, speaks very highly, Jonathan, of of the the meat and the mojo that's happening behind your story idea. Um, good. I'm on the right on the right path. Then you are absolutely on the right path. I'm curious about a choice um, with with technology being set in the late Cold War tech, uh, uh, and even to the point where gunpowder is even less prevalent. So we're back to a Renaissance level um, uh, manner of technology, at least in terms of gunfire and gunplay. Um, the presence of AI technology in this, you know, f- to a contemporary reader more primitive or or antiquated environment seems like a sharp contrast which is not a bad thing at all but i'm curious if you have a reason why you made that choice of having older tech but a much more advanced science fiction concept in terms of ai self-awareness well as uh, as mike noted i have been very heavily influenced by <laughs> anime heavily in- influenced by comics video games all that okay and in in these mediums uh these sorts of reverse anachronisms are not uncommon okay and okay it's- so so but uh john uh so keep that in mind and that's cool and i got it and and uh the anime influence is showing but i had the exact same thought that, that ai coexisting with renaissance level uh technology in a comic book or a um video game where the visual um, the visual splendor of the of the media can divert a audience's attention in a way that text presentation can, and so mm-hmm. you are obliged to explain things with a lot more depth in uh, in in prose than you are in those mediums, and even in those okay. mediums that's changing. So what I, all I'm saying is I'm not saying that that you have to do things differently, but I am saying that you may you may want to think about coming up with a viable explanation for why these technologies happen. And let me give um, uh, one thing from video games that might help you. Uh, the technology trees from civilization, if you play the video game, um, yeah. allow you to have a civilization that has fighter jets but hasn't invented the wheel, right? <laughs> um, or, or whatever. I mean, that's actually probably impossible in civilization, but you get the idea. It can have one tree of technology developed right. without another tree, because technology builds on, on different platforms. And right. uh, I love that idea. And I feel like no shit looking at the civilization technology tree or looking at other building blocks of technology and explaining why something happened or didn't happen, why gunpowder uh, is you know rarer on your planet or something. Um, it, it, there are ways to do those explanations, but okay. just um, but, but maybe have that as a note to yourself to, to, um, to do it. Not to spend a whole lot of time on it, but... The the fact that the gunpowder powders are rare on the planet, all the other technology has still advanced. It's just with limited gunpowders, there's less gun usage, if you know what I'm saying. Sure. So it's it's Renaissance in the sense that melee weapons are still used more than. We we uh, haven't mastered firearm. mass destruction yet. We haven't taken warfare to the level of a, a global okay. conflict. Right. But what so, about this? What about this? You, you've already said that there is there's an almost semi medieval 
sense of family and honor. And um, uh, I, I feel that vote. This idea of great houses or great uh, or great governments. This doesn't feel to me like a like the government of the United States. It feels to me sort of like the government of of Europe or something. Right. Um, uh, right. Okay. So, well, if that's your ethic. Why can't gunpowder be real, but there be a culture where melee weapons are a warrior's weapon, and that's what we do. And uh, uh, even in the Star Wars universe, uh, melee weapons are used because, uh, you know, that's that's how Jedi fight. Of course, in the Star Wars universe, melee weapons could be used to block projectiles, but, um, <laughs> but I, I, it's another option. It doesn't have to be a, a scientific reason why, but there could be a cultural reason why. Which I think actually infuses a little more life and and pulse beat and meat to the culture because you have a culture that is so committed to that paradigm of personal honor and personal engagement that they never escalated their conflicts to that level. I think that actually in the context of your overall themes of ideals uh, and radical ideals and and also of enlightenment and self-awareness for AIs, that actually might be a, a, a neat shoring up or affirmation of that theme that you want to explore and give you more stuff to work with in the characters themselves. Did you guys yes. see? Did you guys see Daredevil? Oh yeah, yes. Uh, yes. How about you, John? Okay, so I, I I just finished watching the second season, and um, I'm struck by you know there's this there's these constant fights in 2017 or whatever the year is, um, and there are these ninjas with swords. You know, <laughs> you have you have guns, guys. Like you could shoot each other, um, but that's not what the hand does. It's not how they operate, and you. You buy that like it's on sale, right? Yep, right. Um, and, and there are some like lower operators, not the central brothers, the central ninjas of the organization that use guns throughout the show. But, you know, the, the real ninjas, Nobu and the real ninjas, man, they use the weapons that are traditionally the, the weapons of the ninja. And I love that ethic, and I think it's very resonant. And, uh, and you can certainly take a page from that book, and nobody will blink. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, something, something to ponder. Something to consider. Sure. Let me let me throw down a couple other uh, uh, points or observations uh, that kind of stuck out at me. Um, and and you know again prefacing everything by saying th- there's meat here, Jonathan. This is good stuffs. Powered armor and AI in the same story. Holy crap! Um, yeah, sign me up. Uh, th- the character of Ginzo is bothering me. Uh, uh, okay. Prof- profoundly. Um, one. Uh, okay, I'm just going to lay these out. One, um, he goes through a lot of transformations. Uh, uh, there's a lot going on in this story, Jonathan. Uh, uh, and I'm, I, I question whether you can cram all of this awesomeness in one book. Uh, so I'd, I'd like to first throw out the possibility of this might be more than one story. Um, because you've got Ginzo going from computer software basically to self-awareness which on any scale in any story is a momentous holy crap uh, uh, transition I don't think having him go from software to AI and then going from AI to enlightened being I don't know if that's going to carry I don't know the, the beat of transition the first transition I think is higher then the beat of the second transition, which means it's a crappy climax. Uh, your climax <laughs> has a falling action rather than a rising action. That's my first observation. I'm not saying it can't work. I'm just saying in the flow as presented, it seems like a, a decline of energy rather than a rising to a climax. 
the other thing that really kind of felt like a violation to me was the discovery and revelation that Ginzo was once human, uh, which feels to me, again, like it completely defangs uh, or de- uh, invalidates the notion of AI self-awareness. He, he cheated. Uh, he, 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 if he's based on a human mm. consciousness matrix, then it's not real AI. We didn't have a real big transition. Uh, he, 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 had a, he had a leg up. He had, he had the crib notes uh, for, uh, for transformation. Okay. Um, so, and again, I'm not saying we can't make that work. I've got some other thoughts and ideas, but I just wanted to put that on the table as a, uh, uh, a thing where I'm going, oh, no, he can't be human. He has to be real AI, man. Uh, so there's that. The other thought is that Charlotte... And and I don't know how this narrative will work. And Mike, I'm looking forward to your thoughts on this. Um, Ginzo as a character doesn't become interesting until halfway through the book. Which means if you're doing a dual narrative, uh, the first half of one one half of the first half of the book is going to be kind of dry without a character. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, Ginzo isn't a character until he has motivations and software initiatives, objectives. I don't know if you can make those compelling motivations i think there's going to need to be something to wrap around ginzo uh, uh to make him and in his part of the narrative interesting uh to sustain right. us to that point of, of transcendence um ai transcendence not <laughs> consciousness transcendence anyway mm-hmm. those those are just my uh, initial points i had some points of question of of, of plot and progression but honestly i think mike kind of nailed it on the head that the, the character is where this thing needs to be and focusing on these character arcs and character progressions uh especially charlotte who mm, powered armor she's badass and yet i'm not engaged with her i'm not interested in her uh and i don't know why that is uh so i'm hoping maybe we through some brainstorming we can find some way to engage her more actively in the narrative mike before we before we before we move to charlotte let's stick with Ginza because i think you raised some really really good points so uh john i think that the only thing that people that the only thing in the world that is interesting is people. That's it. That is the only thing. Um, no one cares about anything but other people. And uh, so when you create a story that's going to be about an animal, like, you know, Watership Down or Shardick or Richard Adams, or you create a story that's going to be about a machine, that has to be a person. And it has to be a person from the very beginning, as um, Dave has so correctly pointed out. So right. let's, look, let's look at some other examples of successful stories about machines that um, makes the reader or the audience fall in love with them immediately. We have R2-D2 and C-3PO in Star Wars, right? Mm-hmm. C-3PO is a robot, yes, but he's really a very, very nervous, neurotic, um, insecure, officious uh, person, right? And R2-D2 is a robot, but R2-D2 is also kind of a maverick who, you know, smart mouths uh, both his owners and um, <laughs> and C-3PO. He's very brave. He's like sort of hobbitish, small, and plucky. And both of them uh, are defined from the very, very beginning by their extremely close relationships with humans. Um, so, for example, they, they've come into the show as uh, um, Princess Leia's, uh, you know, droids and then they wind up very quickly attached to luke as his droids um and and the relationship their whole existence is conceptualized by their relationship with those humans let me give you some other examples um if you look at um uh, bicentennial man or steven spielberg's ai or Mm -hmm. even the um 
Buzz Lightyear and Woody from Toy Story. These are mechanical toys, but they are all defined immediately by their relationship to their owners and to people. And um, because if there's one thing we can all identify with, and there's one thing that humanizes its relationships with other humans. So having uh, Jinzo be a piece of software that's developed to do something and slowly obtaining consciousness, Dave is rightly pointing out, is not enough. At, at jump, from the moment that Jinzo is created, he has to have a deep, passionate, and committed relationship of some sort with humans. And that relationship has to color him and has to be flawed. So in AI, see Spielberg's AI, the AI is first an instrument of sort of unraveling a family, right? And then is eventually abandoned by, uh, it, uh, is eventually abandoned by um, its, you know, uh, parent, what it has come to see as its parent, and then spends the rest of the film trying to sort of create this tragic lost parent-child bond which of course is impossible because it's not human, but that um, that tragedy is what what grips us. So it's the same thing with Jinzo. You've got to do something where Jinzo's relationship with its creator, or Jinzo's relationship with the humans it's killing, or the humans it's working with, are mm -hmm. impacting on Jinzo in a major, major way. And it may be that you already have plans for this, and you and you just didn't bring it out in in the uh, summary that you read to Dave and I. Although I wager that I wager that if you don't know that that's important to bring out in the summary, then that's uh, something that needs to be uh, raised. The, the urgency of that needs to be raised in your mind. But the cool thing is, man, there are lots of examples. This is a wonderful thing about writing. Is everything's already been done. <laughs> so you don't have to reinvent the wheel, brother. You, I'm giving you a total excuse in, to say, I'm working and watch a bunch of movies and TV back to back, and it's work. Uh, and you don't have to say you're slacking. Uh, because you can see in the examples I've given you, uh, and you could just crib straight off of that and make it your own. And and just as a as a possibility, Jonathan, just as a uh, the opening narrative of of your story, if if Charlotte, if we if we open with Charlotte getting the powered armor to take down an enemy who people believe has created an AI. And so it sparks a violent response. No, no, you cannot have an AI. And so the opening salvo is is Charlotte going off to do battle with this nation or, or faction that is even rumored to have an AI, and they're going to be obliterated because of that. And then the next scene is have uh, Ginzo's creator turn on his AI right then and there. The very next scene be, here's an AI that's actually happening somewhere else. And the, the creator says, shh, tell no one that you're alive. And now we can have this whole opening arc where Ginzo is self-aware and can impose that wonderful AI uh, uh, perspective on the culture, which is this wonderful, very objective, very clinical, at least initially until he grows into his AI-ness. Uh, 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 assessment, kind of like uh, Johnny Depp in, um, oh, what was it, Tran tra uh, Trans Transcendence? Was that the movie? I forget. Um, yeah, I believe so. Yeah, you know the movie I'm talking about. Uh, uh, and, and really, that was the interesting part of that movie, was watching Johnny Depp grow into his AI-ness. Uh, uh, and then then you can have the revelation of the world that AI is real. Holy crap, now that's something huge. And then if you want to continue to that that true transcendence of consciousness, now we started the book off with AI. So now that leap 
to full transcendent growth is is a natural progression up. It's the natural step up. Does that make sense? Yeah, I see what you're saying. Okay. Okay. Uh, and so there, 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 there is that. Um, Mike, what do you think about uh, uh, Ginzo's consciousness matrix being uh, uh, basically robocopped? Uh, <laughs> that he's basically human. Uh, uh, did did that have the same effect on you that it did on me? Yeah, I, I don't. I don't. Also, don't, it doesn't make sense um, unless okay. you're sort of taking a page from um, Richard K. Morgan's Altered Carbon, where this human's consciousness has been uploaded somehow and then downloaded again, which is a whole other layer of sophistication. Um, and I and uh, I don't know that I I see what Dave's saying about it seemingly like cheating. I also just don't know if you need it. I think it's a hell of a lot more interesting if he's an AI that develops consciousness. That this that machine learning, you know, the only winning move is not to play, right? right. Uh, learns of uh, uh, learns it that way. Um, let me. Do you mind if I hijack the conversation? Because there's uh, there's something else I want to please um, please hijack, hijack away. away. So now I think we do need to cover Charlotte. Um, but but before we get to Charlotte, uh, I want to say. So there's a, and this goes to your tagline. Your tagline is that it's a robot and an armored warrior learning about themselves and the nature of man as they clash in this epic struggle. I don't like that tagline. I also don't like the, top, the title. Okay. Um, uh, so I don't like that tagline because there's nothing's at stake. Who is the robot? Who is the armored warrior, right? That's the important thing. What's wrong with them? What are their flaws? What makes them interesting? And um, what are they learning about themselves? Of course they're learning about themselves. Everything we do all day long is learning about themselves. But here's the thing I'm not getting from that tagline or from the summary. What is at stake? What happens mm. if Jinzo or Charlotte don't reach mm. their goals, right? What happens? What's yeah. the big deal? There's a war going on. I got that. But like, it doesn't seem like it's an imminent danger of one side winning or the other. Uh, it doesn't okay. sound like if one side wins or the other wins, it's going to significantly alter the face of the universe. Uh, at least that's not coming across in what I've heard. So who cares? Okay. Which side, who cares if one side wins or the other? Um, mm. Let me uh, let me uh, uh, give you uh, an example. Now, one thing you should never do, John, when you're um, teaching uh, writers or trying to work with writers is use your own reference, your own work. You always <laughs> reference, reference other people's work. So, so let's look at my book, Gemini. Stuff. <laughs> um, so I have, I have a, um, my protagonist is uh, dead. He's an undead guy. So he's a, a Navy SEAL gets killed. And then he's sharing his body with a, a, a devil, a, a demon. And mm -hmm. that gives him superpowers. So he's this, animated corpse and the government is still running on long missions. All right. So that's badass. I think on the level of power armor, on the level of a cool AI, right? I, I think that's cool. Yes. But that's not, but that's not interesting in and of itself because making something badass, whatever. I mean, every, every video game, whatever. So his family is still alive. He thinks they're dead, but they're not. Um, and so now what he cares about most in life is, is still there. This devil that's sharing his body, his own corpse with him, granting him these superpowers, is also trying to corrupt him and sort of push his soul out so it can take soul control over the corpse. So his very personhood is at stake. And the reader is seeing that his family is still alive and he's slowly learning that, uh, that 
you know, drawing closer to realizing this. So the possibility of him being reunited with them. So again, human relationships at the core of everything is held out to the reader, plus the risk of him losing his personhood. Lastly, we learn that um, this organization that he's a part of is uh, a secret organization that has nefarious goals that are earth-shaking in their consequences should they achieve them. So he is a soldier for an organization that, while not technically evil, is sure as heck not great. Um, and if it gets away with what it wants to get away with, it's going to seriously impact the world. And I'm deliberately being vague because I don't want to provide spoilers. <laughs> um, and uh, um, But that organization exists for a reason, and the job they're doing is important. So if they fail to succeed in their objectives, there are consequences that way too. So what I'm not getting from your summary, is, uh, especially from that tagline, and the reason I keep focusing it on the tagline is that, is that when you lead with a tagline that, that, that's that neutral, it tells mm. me that, that maybe you haven't thought it through enough. But the good news is, is that all of these things we're describing are easy fixes. They're, they're significant fixes, but they're still easy fixes, which is to say it doesn't take a lot for you to sit down and say, huh, I got to raise the stakes here. What's really going on? You know, what, right. And the other thing is, is what are their motivations? So everything I see right now is kind of externally focused. The, the most significant human uh, connection I'm seeing is that Charlotte is worried that she's going to disappoint her parents, right? There's no pleasing her parents, which is, which is good. Um, it's, it's very common, um, and it's been done a lot in fiction, and, and people are also super familiar with it. Let's uh, look at other examples. So um, we have, uh, let, let's look at uh, uh, George R. R. Martin. Uh, have, you have you read the Game of Thrones, Song of Ice and Fire, that stuff? Yes. Okay. So I don't know about you, but I'm pretty fucked up. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I have issues, right? And I'm okay, okay with that because I know that everybody has issues. And those issues are what make people interesting. You know what? Screw George R. R. Martin. Let's talk about me. <laughs> um, I have a career in armed service, right? I've been an officer in the Coast Guard, been to Iraq three times. I've uh, done all this stuff with intelligence. I'm on this TV show now as a man hunter. I currently work for the largest police department in the world, I think, maybe certainly the country. Um, so, wow, man, like I'm really a tough guy, right? I, I, I've gone into the armed service and going to war and and tip of the spear, blah, 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 right? Really tough guy. Okay, well, well, no. I grew up a nerd. And I grew up a nerd who got his ass kicked. And I grew up a nerd who couldn't get dates. Uh, and I consciously and deliberately reconstructed myself into the image I've described to you. And I did that because I was scared all the time. Because I had a tough childhood and my parents didn't parent all that great. And so I didn't feel safe. And so I sort of had to... And I, and I looked around for what can I do to feel safe, you know, and I looked for, and I didn't have any male role models. So I looked around and was like, oh, superheroes, right? They're not scared. Or that guy in the plate armor on the cover of the D&D &D basic book, he doesn't look scared. He's pointing that bow at that red dragon. Um, so I externally modeled those behaviors that violent power and people with violent power could cope with fear. And I reinvented myself in that mold. And like all complex things, I'm driven by my baggage, right? But I'm driven by my baggage to a good place. And I like where I am right now. 
That's a really, really fucked up and complicated set of things. But it's also really interesting, I think. I think that's very interesting. <laughs> yes, agreed. <laughs> um, agreed. Right. So, right. So that's what you need in your characters. Tyrion Lannister is worried about disappointing his dad. But it's not that simple. The guy, it's not his fault. He's born with dwarfism, right? And mm -hmm. so, but he's also smarter than everyone. And in a lot of ways, braver than everyone. And, and he's had to survive in this incredibly vicious family, which also can't let him, you know, uh, disgrace them by not supporting him, even though they despise him. And then there's that whole thing they do with that woman, Aja, uh, to sort of shame him, that woman he loved. Yeah. Um, so that's the kind of depth of fuck up in this you need to make the character really, really compelling. So she... She feels like she'll never satisfy her parents. It's not enough. What mm. you need to do once again, not just with the whole story, but with each character, raise the stakes. Make it matter more. Make those um, jagged edges a heck of a lot sharper. I hope I'm, I hope I'm making sense on all this stuff. Yeah, yeah, I'm getting what you're saying. Okay. Can we... Can we Mike, do you have any what ifs? Anything like any any just a, a start down the road of a tweak or a nudge that could put Charlotte uh, and even Ginzo into into that more rich uh, story vein of fucked upness uh, that makes characters interesting. Okay, well, I think with Ginzo, whatever it is, has to be has to do with his relationship with a human, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that Ginzo has to have a relationship with the creator. Um, and that creator has to, like, I mean, maybe have a creator, his creator teach him something and then violate that same thing. You know, like uh, the creator can, you know, uh, can teach him that um, uh, life is sacred. And then at the same time, then teach him to take life, right? And, and he's dealing with that conflict, right, of, uh, of life being sacred. But why am I taking life? Well, you take life so that you can save life. And you force Ginzo to confront those kinds of really complex questions. Or then maybe uh, maybe Ginzo finds himself in a situation then where he has to harm his creator to save another life. You know, even though he loves his creator. And, it's, and, and uh, so now he has to confront this moral question in a context that's very personal to him. I like that. And, and I'm just making this shit up off the top of my head. <laughs> Well, one of the one of the things that struck me uh, uh, when Jonathan was laying out the story arc was the fact that 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 uh, Ginzo was was born of a human consciousness felt like a violation. But the fact that that human consciousness was a violent rebel simultaneously, I went, "Ooh, that's kind of badass." So I'm wondering if you know if we could to to amplify those. Uh, uh, conflicts, Mike, that you were uh, just listing out. If if Ginzo's consciousness not was he was once human, but that maybe okay. How about this? There is a boogeyman in the history of this world. Uh, uh, someone who threatened to topple everything and put us into the world like that we have now, where global conflicts and mass destruction uh, were the watchword of the day. And the, the prevailing cultural leaders threw this man down, and he is now Satan, as far as anybody. When anytime anybody starts talking about making big bombs or machine guns, they raise this guy up and say, hello, you know, this, is, this guy's like Hitler for them, okay? If, if you raise this okay. guy up, he becomes the bad guy. If his, 
if something happened in his demise where his consciousness was imprinted in some way, however your AI technology works, that that was the only consciousness that this scientist who created Ginzo could access, then Ginzo's heritage, his origin, his genesis is, is patterned off of the most hated, reviled, hideous being known to man. The Osama bin Laden of, of this universe. Oh, but better yet, don't make it a limit of the technology. Make it that this creator is a maverick and believes that people are wrong about this guy. Or oh, that yeah. while, he, while that he agrees that this guy is evil, uh, his, his methods are needed now because the war has reached a turning point. And so he secretly has created um, oh, Ginzo yeah. as this evil being, right? And, and, and that's Ginzo's secret, is that he's the reincarnation of this evil evil thing and that that this evil person's personality manifests over time and then of course ginzo now has to keep it a secret and as he tries to form relationships with people and they get to know him and he hears himself reviled as an evil being that's a really compelling story and then eventually he forms a really close maybe romantic relationship with somebody and has to reveal his true self for some reason and all the risk that's entailed there that's really good well, and, and then with that in mind, there's nothing that stops us from putting Charlotte and Ginzo side by side. Uh, they don't have to be adversaries or opponents initially until that revelation that Ginzo is, you know, the Antichrist reborn. And now you get this wonderful, you know, they, they formed this bond, uh, this very secret, secret bond. God, maybe, oh, no. I was just maybe Charlotte's the creator, but that's mm. yeah, that might be a bit of a reach. I don't know. I'm trying to bond Charlotte and Ginzo more intimately together yeah. so that their arcs are are so that the stakes for one have consequences for the other in a much well, more well, intimate maybe, way. Maybe maybe here's how you do that. If, if we accept the premise as we totally rewrite Jonathan's book here without his permission, <laughs> um, the bullshit flag is flying high. We got the bullshit if, flag working. If we accept the premise that um, Charlotte, uh, or rather that Ginzo is this uh, reincarnated version of this Antichrist, um, what if that Antichrist was responsible for the death of Charlotte's parents, or the death of Charlotte's sibling, or the, or the death of Charlotte's lover, so that there's a direct hatred between uh, Charlotte and this reincarnated AI, and then when Charlotte has to work together with him later, or comes into conflict with him later, and that gets revealed, dum-dum-dum. Yeah, or as a twist on that, make the Antichrist part of Charlotte's family, and they have had to live down the reputation of having Hitler in their family for for years and years, and they're just now reaching the point. Charlotte's appointment with the powered armor is like this major turning point for her family. Thank you, Charlotte. Finally, we can redeem ourselves, and now she has this friendship with this AI, and oh, fuck. (laughs) Now what do we do? So... Okay, um, we're running out of time. Mike, did you have any thoughts on Charlotte in particular? Uh, I agree with everything that you've said as far as, as we need to we need to rough her up and give her a little more uh, uh, stakes and a little more conflict besides just wanting to, to satisfy the parents. We, we've kind of done that. Did you have any other thoughts along those lines? Yeah, I mean, look, she's, I just think she's flat and, uh, and there's not enough going on with her. Um, I, all I know about her is that she's a badass and I kind of get the feeling that she's a sign of a noble house. Um, 
let me uh, give you another example from a book. Uh, there's a, an, an author, uh, Sarah Griffin, whose book, a Fost, uh, Lost and Found Parts, uh, recently was released. She's an Irish writer. And um, in this book, her main character is a engineer from this family of engineers who is is under pressure to produce a great, her father was this like great engineer whose projects changed all of society. And she's under tremendous pressure to produce this contribution to society by a certain date. And if she doesn't produce it by this, you know, puberty ceremony or, or significant event, then she will have disappointed everybody and kind of fall by the wayside. So there's a time pressure and a stake for her to perform something. If you're insisting on having Charlotte be this scion of a noble house who, you know, will never satisfy her parents, there has to be some stakes to it. And there has to be something that Charlotte wants that her parents don't want for her. So I don't know. Uh, a good example of this is Joe Abercrombie's Half a King, where the, the protagonist is, uh, has a uh, damaged hand. and He can't be a warrior. And he doesn't want to be a warrior. He wants to be a diplomat and a spy. And he's convinced his parents to let him do that. But then circumstances conspire to force him to be a warrior. So the, until it's the only path left open to him. And he has to sort of struggle in this area in which he has a built-in disadvantage in the form of his crippled hand. So... That kind of thing. And again, John, you're in a great spot. People have done all this hard work. Steal it. <laughs> you know, go go read Half the King. And like, you know, obviously don't don't plagiarize it, but like take the idea and, and fuck with it and make it your own. I mean, that's what all writers do. And you should absolutely do it too. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually, I was, as you were talking, Mike, I was thinking about, uh, I just did a rewatch of uh, Live, Die, Repeat, the, the Tom Cruise movie. No, that's, um, oh, that's uh, what the hell is it? Edge of Tomorrow. Edge of Tomorrow, right. Which uh, is based on an anime called All You Need Is Kill, which is one of the great titles in anime. <laughs> Indeed. And, and I remember watching that movie in the movie theaters and going, that was awesome. But then when I rewatched it, I realized what a brilliant narrative arc that was and what a great transformation of character it was from a smarmy PR guy into someone who essentially saves the world. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what a heroic arc. Uh, You know, another good one, another good one, which just came out. Have you guys seen uh, Arrival, which is based on a Ted Chiang story? Yes. Have have you, John? No. I can't say that I have. John, you're missing one of the great works of science fiction literature of our age. It is so good. And you want to talk about a narrative arc for a character. And and I don't want to say anything because it really, the the gut punch you're going to get at the end of that film, especially if you go in blind. Um, and it's a science fiction story, so it'll really be right up your alley. But it will—you will come away from that with some better understanding of how to tell a great story. Yeah, yeah, excellent, hmm. awesome. Okay, very cool. All right, guys, I'm gonna—I'm gonna take us into that final phase as the clock slowly dribbles the last of its eternal sand into the bottom of the hourglass, uh, and and move us into that final phase of of final thoughts. Uh, an encapsulation of ideas and concepts. Uh, uh, basically, we'll, we'll both give uh, Jonathan some some final thoughts and considerations, filling his pockets with as much literary gold as we can muster so we can go off and write this bad boy. Mike, final thoughts for Master Jonathan. Uh, I would say this. Um, uh, you know, you've just been getting it uh, from both ends. Uh, here. <laughs> but what I want you to leave with is that you're you are ahead of 99.9% of the writers out there in that your focus is squarely on your characters. 
Mm. Most people, when they write, they focus on everything but. They focus on setting. They focus on cool what ifs. They focus on plot. Uh, and the characters are kind of tugged along by that plot. The fact that you're worried about um, making these characters compelling means that you know how to write and that you know how to write in a fundamental way. So I hope, that, I hope that you'll um, take take that encouragement. I'm not blowing sunshine. I don't blow sunshine. No. Uh, that's the <laughs> um, so, um, I mean, you definitely have work to do here. And you also have to remember that you have to be, remember that if you're going to be a writer, no one project is the project. Um, right. You certainly have to see your projects through to completion. You owe it to yourself and to your craft to take this idea and make it as good as you can and then either decide to ditch it or have it fail or have it succeed in the marketplace. Um, but you have to be looking at the long haul and, and contenting yourself with the fact that if this doesn't do what you want it to do, the next project will, because this is some of what you had to do to get to where you need to go. There sure. is no wasted writing. That's right. Absolutely. Good advice. Excellent advice. Um, I'm, I'm going to drill down and be kind of a little more uh, 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 specific, I guess, uh, uh, and, and urge you in, a, in one very specific choice that you made with this story is to examine very closely why you had you, you chose parallel narratives. Uh, your initial choice when you when you decided to write this story was that you were going to have two perspectives. One was Charlotte and one was Ginzo. And, and I think Mike and I have both been kind of conspiring to entwine those more intimately. And I think I think there's a strong narrative instinct for us to do so. And obviously, the fact that we just spent 45 minutes trying to do that uh, indicates we both think it's right. Um, that doesn't necessarily make it so. But I would invite you first to to consider why you wanted them separate. What was it about their separate stories that in your mind would somehow create a gestalt for the reader that would create this this final sense of completion of one whole story? Um, and that's something we didn't get a chance to talk about, And and but it, it, I think it's something worth exploring. Um, that mm. said, mm. Uh, I, I really do think that you can save the challenge of having two parallel storylines is that you then have to have all of the the backstory, the overhead and the support for two discrete narrative arcs, uh, which is a lot of words. And, you know, that just is going to make for a longer story. If you entwine them, if you if you enmesh them, then the potency of the human scion uh, who is a warmonger, not a warmonger, but it becomes a war machine, perhaps against her will, and the transcendent AI who has just come into awareness and perhaps is approaching even transcendence, uh, uh, that keeping them together, getting them engaged uh, uh, actively, uh, I, I, it feels like there's a lot of story juice that you could uh, uh, tease from having them be directly engaged in some way, shape, or form. Mm. Not as protags and antags necessarily, uh, uh, but as as part of each other's story more intimately than than perhaps you initially thought. That's that that's my suggestion is is finding ways to graft their story arcs together so that the stakes are compact and compressed uh, uh, and you don't have to pull that double duty of telling two separate stories that somehow need to weave together into one. 
So that's that's my suggestion, I, just for consideration. So, all right, Jonathan, dude, fabulous discussion, uh, and that doesn't happen if we don't have good good food to feast on. So, well done, bringing an excellent story to the pitch line, man. Now you know how this works. You take all of this fabulous literary gold, scrape away all the bullshit because there certainly was some, uh, uh, and then you write this bad boy and you put it out in the world, whether it's a PDF on your website or or a contract gig uh, with one of the big five, six, however many there are now. Doesn't matter if your story is out in the world. Then you come back, you let me know, and we will knight you. We will bring you back. We will make you a Knight of the Round Table podcast. <laughs> Are you down with that, man? Oh, so down. So down. Awesome. Very cool. Jonathan, thank you, man. It takes cojones to do this no matter how many times you've done it, and I deeply appreciate it, man. Thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. And Mike Cole, we've already affirmed it's not going to be three years uh, uh, before the next time you're on. And honestly, this brainstorm has just affirmed my resolve uh, uh, to have that happen. You, you've you got a gift for this stuff and, and you brought your A-game and raised some superb points and some superb examples. Uh, much gratitude, brother. Thank you. Thanks for having me. John, thanks for sharing your stuff with me. Uh, thank you. Yes, indeed. And the, the gratitude is flowing around. As long as we're doling it out, friends, thank you for hitting that play button. You guys complete the circuit that is the round table. Uh, we share these episodes so that you can get that same catalyst of spark, that that inspiration, that fuego moment of, oh, no, 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 you're forgetting this. See, when you listen to somebody else's brainstorm, that's exactly what happens. I'm always shouting at my speaker anytime I listen to somebody else's brainstorm on the road. I'm saying, no, you're forgetting this I'm sure you guys did that too. If you're feeling that fire, that's awesome. That our job is done here. Feel free to pay it forward. Tell the world about us. Write a review on iTunes or, or blog about us. Let the word know. There's not enough people that know about the fabulosity happening here at the round table. You can make that make that difference and change that. So alright, geez. I'm sitting here every damn time. The, the the temperature in this room goes up 10 degrees every time I record one of these episodes. I'm sitting here sweating. Uh, but I will say, and, and I know that only people that are really into this podcast are still listening at this point, but I will say, uh, <laughs> and go on record as saying, I only had two cigarettes during that whole recording. I am, well done. Uh, well I, am, I am down to half a pack of cigarettes a day. Uh, and wow. I'm in the process of eliminating. I figured, really, I'm being selfish. The world is a better place with me in it. What kind of prick would I have to be to kill myself <laughs> early? So I'm really, I'm doing it for the world to to quit smoking and and get that off monkey off my back. So progress. We're is all made. very grateful. <laughs> Thank you, Chuck. You're, you're a good man. The check is in the mail. <laughs> all right. Uh, uh, the fabulosity continues, dear friends. It's going to be 14 days, but it's not going to stop. We've got got more guest hosts coming in to pour wisdom in our ears, more courageous guest writers who are, are bringing fabulous story pitches for brainstorming, more, more roundtable awesomeness to be had. It's 14 days. I know it's a long damn time, but guys, you got 14 days. Go write. Put your stories in the world. And I will tell you, as I always do, you find what you're looking for. So look for that top shelf blue label goodness. Look for that lost Christmas present at the back of the tree. Look for those hidden wonders in the world. And if you look for it, I promise you, friends, you will find it. We will be back in 14 days. Until then, you guys stay cool, stay frothy, and stay awesome. And we'll talk to you soon.
Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, Sharealike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David Labroyer, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at Writers Podcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.